Let's let's start with a prayer. God, you are holy and awesome. God, you are holy and awesome. We thank you that your love is steadfast and that your mercy is new every morning. You are faithful. You are love. You have mercy and compassion on your enemies. And God, we thank you that we can call you Father this morning. God, I pray that you would take me and take Amber out of the way so that you could speak this morning. I pray that you would you would give us the words to share so that people would know that this is not about us. This is your story. When we are weak, you are strong. So God, I pray you would bless this time this morning and that you would be at work in people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Let me start out by saying this is not about us. We both spilled our coffee this morning on our laps. (laughs) I think it was just a reminder... We're not so great. <laughs> I want to tell a story this morning, and Amber can tell some some of her story, and we'll see where it goes, and we'll have some time for questions. I was a sophomore in college at Abilene Christian University and I had done a semester of study abroad in Oxford, England and came away from that semester saying, I think at the end, I think for the next two years, I want to take advantage of the opportunity I have at ACU to study scripture, to sit at the feet of of the Bible teachers and theologians and scholars there while I have that opportunity. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But as a 20-year-old, I thought, yeah, I've got two more years of college. I might as well do that with it. I had been on a, a few mission trips before that. My very first mission trip was in 1998. I went with a group from my church in Indiana to Nairobi, Kenya, and we spent 17 days doing VBS and programs for school kids and a couple of medical clinics. And um, my aunt and uncle who are here this morning were 
the leaders of that group. And, and that experience had a, a profound impact on me. I'm sure it impacted me more than it did any of those kids we, we worked with for those couple of weeks. So as I went through this, the Bible department at ACU, um, one, of the, one of the things we had to do was a, a ministry internship of some sort between our junior and senior year as part of a course that was a two-semester course. And a lot of my friends were going off to be youth ministry interns in Atlanta or preaching interns or chaplaincy interns somewhere, and I thought, that doesn't sound very fun to me. And one of my friends said, hey, I'm going to East Africa. He already, he had his goal set. He was a very driven uh, dreamer, and he was moving to western Uganda to, to work into Congo as a missionary. And he had spent a couple summers with missionaries there, and so he wanted to spend that summer, his last summer of college, visiting other missionaries in East Africa to see what they were doing, how they worked, what kind of ministries they were involved in. And he invited me to join him in that. So that was that was my internship for that summer. And I was I remember sitting in the missionary's house in, in Mwanza, Tanzania, and they had a guest it was actually a professor from, from my university who had come there to kind of do some ministering to their team and he preached a, a message I think it was from Second Corinthians 5 but I, I came away from that that summer and actually in, in that list, reflecting on that message that he preached I, I realized a couple of things that I said last night if I have given myself to Christ, I am his slave. And he will decide where I go and I will and I will follow. You know, it was that imagery from from Paul's letter, I think I don't even remember the, the reference, I'm sorry, but where he talks about we're being led in triumphal procession. And to some we're the uh aroma of life and to others the stench of death and, and he, this this preacher said that imagery is not of us as the victors in this triumphal procession we are the, the prisoners of war we are the captives being led by Christ who has, who has claimed us for his own and that was a really powerful image for me and I realized wherever God leads me I will I will go if I continue to give myself to him. And that was scary because I like being comfortable. And that summer I had not found a place that was comfortable. I mean, you know, there are no lazy boys or big soft sofas in East Africa. At least I never saw one. And honestly, that was that was probably what scared me the most about that was, I I like comfort. And the the second side of that lesson was, God will give you what you need to be faithful to Him. And I don't 
I don't remember if somebody said those words or if, if that was just kind of something I took away from the message or, or if it was just a gift from God. But I, I've clung to those two lessons for 12 years now. And I never understood them during that 12 years the way that I do today. So at the end of college, I'll try to shorten the story a little bit. At the end of college, I my degree led to preaching or teaching, and I thought, I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I don't feel equipped or prepared to be a preacher or a, a serious teacher of the Bible. But God's called me to be a missionary, and I need some way to serve people. Like I, I, I sensed after that summer and and reflecting on all of the influences in my life up to that point that God wanted me to be his missionary. And, and that may or may not have meant a foreign missionary. It just meant that he called me to be an ambassador for Christ, participating in the ministry of reconciliation. God is making his plea through us, be reconciled to God. And I thought, I need, I, I can't go around telling people that I need some way to serve them and show them that. And so I decided, I think I will try to go to medical school. And I called my parents, you know, a couple of weeks before I graduated from college with a Bible degree and said, I think I want to try to go to medical school. <laughs> and they were really supportive. And I ended up back in Abilene for a fifth year to do all of my science prereqs. And I want to tell you that from the time I decided that I would try to go to medical school, and really I, I think I was making a bigger decision than that without even rec- recognizing it. I think I was, I think I was making that decision that, okay, God, I'll let you have my life. This is what I think you want me to do, so, so I'll do it. I'll start down that road. I didn't, I didn't think about that at the time. In fact, I probably never have articulated it that way until right now. But from that moment, absolutely nothing has gone as I expected it to. <laughs> I told somebody last night, I did really well on the MCAT. Way better than I thought I would do. And I kind of thought, wow, I'm... I'm going to get to choose my medical school based on who offers the biggest scholarship. And I got interviews at, at lots of places. You know, I interviewed at Columbia and WashU and Vanderbilt and all of these big name places that I thought, yeah, I could, I could go to medical school there. And then I got rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. And I ended up back at Indiana University School of Medicine. And I that was not the place I really wanted to go when I when I saw my MCAT score. But it was such a blessing. I was 24 years old, and I moved back home and lived with my parents next door to my grandparents, who both died while I was in medical school, and I got to spend the last years of their lives around them. And I lived with my parents so I wasn't accruing debt for my living expenses and that summer that uh, 
after I graduated, when I had made that decision, I'm going to try to go to medical school, I went on another short mission trip with my church, to this time to Honduras, where we had been a number of times. And um, we la- actually, we landed in El Salvador first. We were going to spend a few days in El Salvador and then go to Honduras. And we, we landed and came through customs, and there were these three young girls there, college students, and they were excited. And they had ice cream cones. One of them had very blonde hair. One of them had the curliest brown hair you've ever seen. And the other one had bright red hair. (laughs) And they were just standing there eating their ice cream saying, They have ice cream here and they take dollars. (laughs) And, And they were all pre-health major students. One of them was a pre-dental student and one of them was a nursing student. And that red-headed nursing student taught me how to measure blood pressure that summer. That was, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been teaching me a lot of things ever since then. And a little glimpse into our love story. She fell in love with me immediately that summer. <laughs> and it took me five years to figure it out. <laughs> um, so nothing went as I expected. And between third and fourth year of med school, Amber and I got married. And we started making our decisions together. What do we? She, she very much already had her own calling to be a missionary. In fact, go tell them what you were doing at that time when I swept you off your feet. Um, I was a nurse. I was working through um, some debt as a travel nurse, and. Um, I took a survey trip to another another part of Honduras, to a little village where someone had built a clinic, but it laid empty. There was a little um, space for some exam rooms and a lockdown pharmacy room and a sink with water. Um, but there was no one there working, and so I thought, well, hey, I could I could move here. It's on the beach. I'm drinking coconuts. Um, but I felt strongly that I needed more training to do that on my own. So I was heading to graduate school to do a dual program as nurse practitioner and nurse midwife. Um, but I, I didn't go <laughs> because, um, yeah, Kent asked me to marry him. I said, well, sh- oh, sh- yes, of course. Um, but I didn't want to spend three years of our marriage while he's in med school in Indiana and I'm in grad school in Georgia. Um, so it didn't, hasn't panned out yet. It's still a dream. Um, is that what you wanted me to tell? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so we started making our decisions together. And we start we... 
we had a baby during the first year of our marriage and uh, went through the process of choosing a residency program. Actually, decide, I, I didn't decide on my specialty until into my fourth year of med school, and then we had to decide on a residency program. And that idea of comfort kept coming back. And the, the words that I've put to it since then, which I don't know that I realized at that time, was that comfort was, was my idol. And so we, we started together to make our decisions intentionally not choosing the most comfortable option. And we looked at residency programs and said, you know what, this one would be really comfortable. The people are great. It's near family. But this one will stretch me professionally probably a little bit more than that other one. And it will stretch us socially. We'll be around people, you know, all the, all the people at this program, are, a lot of them are a lot like us. At this one, there, there are some people like us, but I'm going to have to deal with a lot of people who aren't like me. And we, we said, let's, let's choose the less comfortable of those two. And, and that went on, you know, for years. We, sometimes intentionally, sometimes just fortuitously. Because we're crazy. Um, during the first year, during my internship, we lived in this nice 1,700 square foot home with a big backyard, and it was great. We loved it. We were near my great aunt and uncle, and our landlord was great, and we re- we signed our lease for the second year, and then we realized we were running out of money, and... You know, we had Amber had some savings from her work as a nurse before we got married, and we were seeing the, those savings were being eroded, and we were trying to be frugal. You know, we budgeted our our food money and our eating out money and our everything, and we thought, what what else can we cut out? What are we, where are we spending excess? And the only thing we could figure out was we need to pay less rent. And we, we even went to the financial assistance committee at our church who make decisions about helping people with their bills and stuff. And we went to them and we said, we don't need your help paying our bills right now, but we need your help in making this decision. Like, Can you look at our budget and stuff and tell us, is there... Is, is there something you see that we could change to live within our means better? Because all we can see is our, our housing. And they looked it over and said, no, I think you're right. And we walked out of that meeting on a Wednesday night, and all our friends were like, hey, we missed you in Bible class. Where were you? And we looked at each other, and we looked at them and said, well, we were in a meeting. I think we have to move. And two of our friends looked at each other and then looked at us and said, come live with us. We said, don't you think you two should talk about that first? 
because we had a, a 17-month-old baby and we're pregnant with our second. And they said, no, come, come live with us. That was on a Wednesday night. Ten days later on Friday or Saturday, we moved into their house. Our landlord was from Bangladesh. He was Muslim. He was a very generous, kind man. And we told him our situation, hoping he would say, well, let's negotiate your rent. But he didn't. He said, well, you have to do what you have to do, and I'll let you out of your lease if you, whenever you want to leave. So we moved in with our friends for a month before uh, doing a rotation. We spent five, I, I chose an elective during my second year of residency to do five weeks in Guatemala with Health Talents International. And so we lived with them for a month, and then we went to Guatemala for a month. And we came back from Guatemala and lived with them for a week or two while Amber found a new place for us to live. And we moved into an apartment in a... uh, We lived on, like, the government-subsidized hallway. They were really kind to... we, We didn't quite qualify for that apartment, but we had a baby and were pregnant, and they said, do you want to live on the first floor? I said, yes, we do. And we lived in that apartment for the next three years. And it was, it was not as comfortable as our house with a big yard. But God provided everything we needed and, and even some comfort in that place. And we, we didn't ever, it was never a big deal that, to us that we lived in that apartment. Uh, but it saved a lot of money, and we made you know we made that decision to say God has called us to be missionaries. We have some educational debt, but we're going to do everything we can to not accrue more debt because we know that'll be a roadblock to us doing what God has called us to do. And and we can we continued paying on our school debt. We didn't forbear through residency. We we did sign up for income-based repayment schedule, but we continued to make those payments every month on both of our, our loans. And somebody, a couple of young guys who just out of college at our church in Fort Worth came up to me our first time back there just just last month when we after this whole ordeal we finally got back to our home church our supporting church and these two young guys who I didn't really know I'd seen them before we left but I didn't really know them they came up to me and were thanking me for our courage to follow God when he called us to go to Africa And I, I told those guys, it wasn't like one day God said, I want you to go to Africa. And we said, okay, we can do this big thing. It was that God said, I want you to not make comfort your idol. And we said, okay. And he said, I want you to live within your means. And we said, okay, we'll try to do that. And... It was it was those things that seem little 
that we just said yes to over and over. And we, we, we by no means got it all right. And we by no means gave up all comfort or uh, always lived within our budget. But we wanted to. And we tried to. And we, when we got to the point of moving to Liberia, it wasn't a big, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to make this big jump. It was, it was an, it was just the next step. So. Well, and we had been talking about it for years and telling everyone when we, when we moved into a new church, we said, we're not going to be here long. <laughs> just four years and then we're moving to the mission field. They embraced that. But we had told so many people that we, we had to. You know, we were, we were, we were committed. And some days that's really how it felt. I mean, that's, that's funny, but it's, it's true. Like, there, there are days when you feel like, what do we, we've told everybody we're going to do this. And some days that's what keeps you on that road, but most days it's not. But the important thing is we kept saying it. We kept reminding ourselves. And, and even now, that is important, that we keep talking about it. And our story that you all know of moving to Liberia and and getting Ebola and and all the dramatic ways that played out. We keep reliving that story. And we keep talking about what God has done in our lives and for us. And you know, God told Israel when they came out of Egypt, set up some stones and and remember this day and when your children say what is this you tell them we were slaves in Egypt and God delivered us with a mighty hand and he told them to relive your story retell your story remember what I have done for you And we read, I think we have a tendency to read the scripture and to read those stories and think, wow, that was really neat. God did great things. But we are the people of God and he is telling us, recall what I have done for you. Because when you tell that story over and over, whether it's God saving your life from Ebola or God reminding you through the failure of your first biochem test in med school that you are not the one who got you here. Tell that story, even if you're just telling it to yourself, and remind yourself that this is not your story, this is your participation in God's story. And that's really what we want people to take away from this today. This is not our story. 
the people in Scripture, Joseph, Joseph was a normal guy. David was a normal guy. All these people we read about, they were real people. One of my friends wrote me a message uh, while I was recovering at Emory. He said, I'm teaching a Spanish class at church and we're going through the book of Philippians. He said, I will never read Philippians 2 the same way again. And he referenced Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about Epaphroditus and how Epaphroditus longs to be reunited with his church in Philippi and because they had heard that he was sick. And Paul says, indeed, he was very sick and almost died. And you should honor men like him because he almost lost his life for the sake of the gospel. And my friend said, from now on, I'm going to call you Epaphroditus. And that's not to say that I am somebody who should be honored and respected. It's to say Epaphroditus was a normal guy who went to help Paul. You know, his church sent him to go help Paul. He was not a hero. He was a normal guy who was willing to go. And I think when we remember that, when we remember that the people in Scripture were real people, and God used them, and God worked in their lives, and He did miracles in them and through them and around them, then we can realize that God wants to do that in our own lives. He wants... Fifty years from now, no one may remember this, our, our whole story. Or they may look back on it and still be in awe of what God did. But it's not, you know, we're normal people. God is still doing amazing things in the lives of normal people. Um, So that's... That's our story. It's not all the details that some of you probably thought you were going to get when you came here this morning. Um, But everybody's heard that story. And we want to um, encourage you all that you you have a story, too. You are part of God's great story. He's called you. You're here. Um, Some of you are going. Some of you are on the fence about doing full-time mission work, but where you are now in your home communities, you are a minister of the Word. God has um, called you, and um, you're, I don't know, you're part of it too. You know, God is still writing, still writing history, and I guess we just feel, we feel like we're, in his story with you, so I want to encourage you in that. We've got 30 minutes to answer some questions. About anything.
There's somebody with a microphone who can run down here. Thanks, Ron. I've spent quite some time with Samaritan's Purse um, when the cholera epidemic in Haiti, and my time to leave was right in the middle of the spike, you know, where we didn't fix it yet. And I had to remind myself that I'm not that big, that it doesn't take me to remain until it's all cleaned up. How are you doing right now with resources, just paying attention to your emotions of, like, being gone and not being a part of what's still going on in Africa? There, there is a part of me that wants to be there helping. When I see John Fankhauser suiting up in PPE to take care of a pregnant woman, I think I need to be there helping him. But I, I can't be right now. And I, I have to remind myself that we, we were pursuing the calling of God, and whether God has placed us in this position or Satan was trying to thwart what God was doing in West Africa, I don't know. What, I, don't, I know there's a spiritual battle going on in this world. And I think a lot of times we try to assign cause or blame uh, to, to one side or the other. And I'm not sure we always know what's really what's really happening or what's really at stake but we are here and so we're going to try to be faithful to God where we are and I've tried to every time I speak to people I try to point attention back to West Africa and say that's where our help is needed that's where our resources are needed it's where people are suffering and they need compassion. And perhaps I can do more for those suffering people from here than I could have if I was there helping them. You were going to say something. I have um, two questions. The first one is, how did you pick Liberia? And then the second one is, how are you feeling physical, physically, and how long does it take to regain your strength after being sick like that? To your first question, how do we pick Liberia? We were at GMHC in 2012 and um, had been accepted to the Samaritan's Purse Post-Residency Program through World Medical Mission. It's got a crazy long title. Um, but we didn't know where we may go, and we were in conversations with them about um, slots open for a family practitioner at their different hospitals where they have partnerships. But um, Kent went down to the exhibit hall and met Rick Sacra, and he was just elated. They talked for an hour, and then he ran to find me. You've got to come meet Rick Sacra. And so we, I think we missed all the breakout sessions. <laughs> it was Saturday morning. Um, but that, that's, and we were like, so Liberia, where's that? <laughs> and, but we committed in December to go to Liberia um, under Rick's mentorship in the post-residency program. 
and spent the next several months checking out every book at the library, reading about Liberia and their civil war and their um, their history of settlement and it was um, it was clearly God put Rick and Kent together. It was clear to us that they how they meshed and how they knew they could work together. They had a, a, they shared a vision for um, training medical students and residents in Liberia, which was it was supposed to start this fall a residency program at our hospital and. <laughs> um, Keep praying for that. Yeah. And second question. I was in the hospital. I was under treatment from the time I got sick until I was released from memory. It was about four weeks, one month. And I felt pretty good when I was released from the hospital. But right after I was released, I was no longer able to just lay in bed all day and do my exercises in the morning. And I lost my routine and I started feeling bad and I would have a day of activity and then the next day I would feel totally wiped out and I would feel like I had a low-grade fever and I was dizzy and it just felt awful and that lasted about three weeks Um, and at that three-week mark so almost two months after my illness started um, we had a very busy week it's when we went to Washington DC and at the end of that week, I thought, hey, I don't feel awful. This is great. <laughs> um, and it still took a few more weeks after that to really regain my strength. Um, but now I'm feeling really good. My, my energy and stamina are pretty much normal, and I don't have any other lingering effects. Kent, you used a word while ago. Uh, you said right now we can't go back. And uh, I'm curious about that word because uh, as I've listened to this story told by other people here this week, uh, it feels to me uh, like the ministry has, with the Ebola patients, has been turned over pretty much to MSF. Do I have those initials right? Yeah, MSF. And, and that uh, I, I wonder what you see mission organizations doing now. It, it feels, as I talk to people, like they're in a waiting mode uh, and that we don't necessarily see that there's a strategy for an evangelical uh, involvement again in the care of these patients who are dying and their families who are grieving. And uh, my own heart is, is disturbed by that, and I, and I don't know what to do with it. So can you take all that and put it back with the word can't? Maybe can't is the wrong word to use. I don't feel like I should take my family back into Liberia right now. And so, for me, for me personally, not for Christians in general, but in my situation, I feel like I need to be with my children right now. And my five-year-old was asking her aunt while I was in the hospital, is my daddy going to die? 
and I need to be with her. Um, so that's that's what I mean. We we are family. Can't go back there right now. To your broader question, I think I don't want to get myself in trouble. I think even we, the Christian community, the American Christian community, often make comfort and security more important than they should be. And I I think it's a really difficult tension for people who are in leadership of mission organizations to decide when do you leave your missionaries in a place of danger where maybe their lives are at risk and when is that just a legal liability and you need to get them out because they're not when do they need to not be there I think that is a very difficult tension and I'm glad that I am not the one who has to make those decisions but you're right there in the midst of tragedy, there is always a place for ministry. There's always a need for Christians to be there showing compassion. And historically, I think we've seen Christians step into those places when other people wouldn't. You know, we saw in, in history, you can see Christians who stayed in the plague to care for people when the rest of society was fleeing. And they stood out and the people thought they were weird and and a lot of them died in that cause. And I think those people who died caring for patients in the plague were martyrs. There are Christian organizations and mission agencies and faith-based groups that are working in, in this outbreak. MSF is... They are the the organization that has responded to Ebola outbreaks in the past. They're the world experts, and in the past they were able to handle these outbreaks in partnership with WHO, like on their own. This one, they can't do that. And they are doing a lot, and they are probably the major organization that is treating patients with Ebola. But... Samaritan's Purse is still active in Liberia. Right now they have 15 expatriate staff there and 350 Liberian staff. And they transitioned their ministry and their work from July and the beginning of August when they were providing most of the treatment of Ebola patients in Liberia. They circumstances took that out of their hands and they kind of brought all their expats out continued to support and and take care of their Liberian staff on the ground there and regrouped and said okay let's get a new strategy and let's go back in and so they're there now doing community intervention community awareness they've been there for 10 years and so they have a lot of relationships and trust and connections in the communities around Liberia. And so they're using those relationships to now help save people from Ebola. And they're they're training 
people how to avoid getting Ebola. They are training people how to take care of their own family members when they fall ill. They're setting up community care centers, which are basically like small 10 or 15 bed Ebola treatment units in places where the international aid has not reached. The USAID and MSF are not there, but there are cases of Ebola in in these communities. So they're setting up these community care centers and training the community members how to take care of their own loved ones in a safe way. And uh, there are other other Christian groups who are going and setting up uh, Ebola treatment units in the places where they have had ministry for some time, and they're recruiting volunteers. And so it, it is happening. It needs to happen more. Even if you ha- even if you have to go work with MSF, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And West Africa needs medical professionals right now to help take care of their people who are dying from Ebola. So whether you go with Samaritan's Purse or MSF or any of the other Christian or faith-based organizations, I think uh, your, your point is well made that this is not the time for Christians to run away and say, we, don't have any, we can't do anything here. Amber, I was wondering if you could speak to, as a wife and mom, what you went through when your husband was sick in terms of, like, wrestling with God, maybe, or questioning, um, God, why did you bring us here? Why did you? Why is this happening? And secondly, um, what are your guys' terms for going, um, plans for going back? Or are you just going to see kind of where God leads you? Um, <laughs> okay, so I, I think the, the question was, how did I handle Kent being sick as his wife and the mother of his children? Um, well, I don't know. How'd I do? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was... No. <laughs> Um, I cried a lot. I slept little. I ate even less. Um, I, it's it's really cloudy to me. My my memory of of Kent's ten days in Liberia sick. Because um, I was just trying. Well, if if I remembered to give my kids food, then I think I was doing pretty good. <laughs> um, I was uh, strongly encouraged by friends. So many people wrote to me. Hundreds of people wrote to me from all over the world. Um, And good friends wrote and said, I'm not expecting you to respond. Thank you. (laughs) But they would just um, paste or write out words of scripture to me, um, which was incredibly meaningful because I did not have the strength to seek out that for myself, honestly. Um, but they would just say, read Psalm 41. And that was enough. Um, that was that was enough. That's what sustained me while he was sick. Um, there were days that he was sicker than other days. 
um, and I would send a, a text to the um, my good friend who kind of heads up our support network at, at our home church. We you need to pray right now, and she would get that out to everybody. And so everyone was on their knees um, when he was his very sickest. Um, the two hardest days I remember were Tuesday and Thursday when he was still in Liberia. He fell sick Wednesday, got his diagnosis Saturday. Tuesday was really bad because he was getting sicker. He had vomited blood the first time. And the Samaritan's Purse uh, workers were trying to reach out to communities in the rural area and um, transfer um, patients to our treatment unit and safely remove um, dead bodies. I don't know how to say that better. But they were attacked by the community. They were not um, allowed to enter and do, you know, do that prevention. And that was hard on us. It really hurt. Um, you try to, you know, we were just trying to help. <laughs> but to see that our um, teammates and friends and, and coworkers were in danger was stressful. Um, as well as Kent being sicker. Wednesday, he was kind of stable. Oh, Tuesday also, my, my nephew was born. <laughs> yeah, other things that were happening that week. Amber's brother had a birthday. Her other brother, had their his, he and his wife had their first child. It was born on Tuesday. And her younger brother was getting married that Saturday. And they, Amber and, and the, the wedding kids, planner quit because she was afraid because my kids were coming to be in the wedding. <laughs> it was a hard week, guys. <laughs> and the, the place where they were supposed to have the rehearsal dinner told them they couldn't okay. have the rehearsal dinner. Uh, and because I was kicked out of my parents' home um, by the state health department because they, they uh, they're foster the parents in a children's home, and so I couldn't stay there, um, which was frustrating because I wasn't ever exposed to Kent, but when he fell sick, people... You know, they're scared. They're still scared. Um, let's see. Thursday, he got really sick. Um, I'm sure if you want to hear accounts of that, you can look on the Internet. <laughs> I don't need to hash that out for you again. Um, but what sustained me were, was prayer. Uh, people praying for me from all over the world. Our home church was praying, uh, meeting at you know, times outside of their regularly scheduled programs to um, pray for Kent and us. They were, yes, they were, yes, they were fasting and tying yellow ribbons around their trees. And um, so I knew that, I knew that support was there, even though um, I wasn't with them. I was with our family. Um What else? Yeah, I think Tuesday and Thursday were our worst days. My nephew was born. He was a long-awaited child for my brother. Um, but Kent was so sick. So my only... I feel bad for the child. He's beautiful. I love him. <laughs> I, um, but my reaction to um, the 
text message, the picture that came through, Samuel's born, was the Lord gives and takes away. And I thought that he was taking away Kent from me. Um, so bless him. They're both healthy. <laughs> I'm so thankful. <laughs> what was the second question? We don't know what we're doing next. I, it's it's really, in some ways, it's really strange, in a lot of ways, it's really strange for us to be sitting here, because I am not a world expert on Ebola. I am a family doctor who read and was taught a whole lot about Ebola in March and April, and then cared for patients for seven weeks, and then made a mistake somewhere and got sick. But people look to me as the Ebola expert in America now. (laughs) And we are not seasoned expert missionaries. We have so much respect and admiration for so many of the people here at this conference who have walked this path. Dr. Bransford is incredible and the way that God has used him and his wife and their family over the years. My aunt and uncle are sitting right here and they were medical missionaries in Tanzania for five years when I was a teenager. And we feel like God called us to a career in medical missions and we were on the field nine months and Amber and the kids had to leave twice and then I nearly died and got evacuated. So I thought we were going to go serve quietly somewhere for 30 years. And maybe, maybe at the end of that, we could write a book that might inspire somebody somehow. (laughs) So we... Maybe by the end of that, we would have some stories worth sharing. <laughs> so to say what's next, I have no idea. And we, we still feel like God has called us to, to, to be medical missionaries. And right now we're trying to use this platform that we've been given that will, this window will only be open for so long. And when it closes, then we'll, I guess we'll get back to what we thought we were going to do in the first place. Kent and Amber, uh, last question. Um, thank you guys very much for coming and, and taking the time to speak with us today. Um, a question I have is, uh, can you explain a little bit about the infrastructure of Liberia and other African countries and their public health system and why Ebola is more difficult to control there than, say, in the United States? I, could, I couldn't understand. Well, I understood part of your question. I couldn't hear every word of it. But Liberia, officially, I think they had a 16-year civil war. Or 14. 
but it really really they've had 20 years of war and civil unrest and dictators and military coups and political assassinations and in that time period in the set, what I understand in the 70s Liberia was like the pearl of West Africa but over the last 30 years through civil war the, the infrastructure of that country was destroyed all the infrastructure the, the roads like in the city of Monrovia 1.4 million people there is no central electricity or running water and it's a big city I mean it's a it's a it's an urban area it's not this is not some just large rural population it's a it's a city but people buy their water from a truck and they run generators to power their shops and stuff um, and that the same thing goes for the medical infrastructure in 2013 Liberia started their first class of residents following the war that ended in 2003 so they were just starting to rebuild the human resource part of their medical infrastructure. And now most of those people, the, the residents as well as the instructors, have either returned to, their, returned to America or whatever other country they were living in previously, or they are working in the fight against Ebola, or several of them have died. And the hospitals are, are largely closed. because Rick Saker gave a really good description of this yesterday, of how the hospital will have a case of Ebola, and they have to close to decontaminate everything. And that's happened over and over and over. And there is no hospital that is fully functional. Elwa Hospital, where we were, is the only hospital in Monrovia that's doing C-sections. No one else will take care of sick OB patients because they don't necessarily present with typical symptoms of Ebola, but they might have Ebola. And women who have been in labor for four days with fetal demise and a ruptured uterus, how do you distinguish that from somebody with Ebola? Um, so the, I think I, Rick said it yesterday, this is going to be, a, when, when this outbreak finally ends, this is going to be a lot like rebuilding after the war. And in some ways it may be harder to rebuild the medical infrastructure because there's still going to be fear that Ebola could show up again. Because it, it can, and it, and it probably will at some point. So pray for the people of West Africa. Guinea and Sierra Leone are not in any better position. They, all three of those countries have been plagued by, by unrest and, and corruption and difficulty rebuilding. Pray for, pray for the countries, pray for the people, pray for the healthcare workers, pray that God would send workers into the field, both for the spiritual harvest, but also because we serve a God of love and mercy and there are people 
who are suffering and they need a, a loving, compassionate hand to, to care for them. You want to say anything else? Please... Please, when you leave here, give glory to God. This is not this is not about us. Two years ago, we were sitting here listening to two or th- two or three years ago, we we're sitting here listening to Steve Saint. We were, we were just in the same shoes as a lot of you. Not all of you, because some of you are well, well beyond where, where we are in life and in our spiritual walk. But you could be the next one to go out and get Ebola while you're serving God. <laughs> and then you'll get to come speak at GMHC next year. So thank you for being here. Let let me close this in prayer. God, we stand in awe of you. We thank you that you are sovereign God. Father, your ways are beyond our ways and we we do not always understand. We rarely understand how you are working in this world, but God, we know that you are working in this world. That it is your desire to reconcile all things to yourself, all people, all creation. And Father, we want to participate in that reconciliation. I pray you would put a burden on people's hearts today. I pray you would put a burden on on my heart and on Amber's heart to be reconciled to you and to carry out your ministry of reconciliation in this world. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who who came to earth to minister to your creation, who showed us how to live and then who paid the price for our wickedness and our sin and who conquered death so that we might have life. And we pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.